But we're just going to open with um, a word uh, of Scripture over Mike before he preaches. And this is from John 6, verses 32 through 40. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one comes to me. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given to me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Thanks, BJ. Good morning again, everyone. Oh, it feels like it's taken a long time this morning to get to this spot, but I want to thank you guys for praying over us. And um, What a text. What a passage of Scripture is Jesus so clearly corrects the people's understanding as they come to him looking for a meal ticket after the feeding of the 5,000. And that text is actually really important for where we're going to be this morning. And if you've been studying with us, you know we're going to the Gospel of Mark. So I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 8 as we continue our study there. And as you turn there, we're following up with what Jesus uh, did at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, which is feed the 4,000. So he fed the 5,000 back in Mark chapter 6. He fed 4,000 people in Mark chapter 8 at the very beginning of this chapter. And we're going to pick up this morning in verse 11. And before we do that, I think it's important to kind of set the stage of what's going on right now and what's going to happen in the forthcoming interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. The whole tendency of the age in which Jesus lived was to look for God in the abnormal. They were looking for miraculous things, and that's where they thought they would find God, is in the abnormal and the things that would catch a lot of attention. We haven't changed much, I don't think. So often, people have what we call a mountaintop experience. And sometimes that can be an awakening, but sometimes it can also be desensitizing to what we actually need to be paying attention to, and that is seeing God in the ordinary. Seeing God in the everyday situations of life. I think we see this tendency that we see in the Pharisees and in Jesus' day repeat itself. We look for God in the miraculous, the spectacular. We ask for ground-shaking demonstrations of his power. And we fail to look at the leaf of a tree and see the beauty of our creator. It's just as evident in the crash of the ocean as it is in the healing of a demoniac or a leper. Jesus... The creator, if you read Colossians chapter 1 and agree with Paul, Jesus inserted his very character, his very nature, the nature of God is evident in the world that's around us. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 this, 
For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Because there's evidence all around us that God exists, that God is very real, and that his handiwork is evident. Do we see the beauty of God all around us every day? Do you see it? Or are we too busy to look? Too preoccupied to stop and take notice of the creative genius of God that greets us every morning we walk out the door, even in wintertime. I have to add that caveat. <laughs> so we're like, I like winter. Sit in the back. I'm just kidding. I like winter through Christmas, and then it's summer, baby. I want summer. I want the warm weather. I, I suffer and die in the winter. But there's still beauty to it, isn't there? There's still beauty to it. Even in the rainy seasons, there's beauty if we're willing to see it. But maybe we're so preoccupied looking for God to do something big and loud and spectacular that we miss it in the everyday sense. Clyde Kilby was a professor at Wheaton College in the 1930s, and he wrote 10 resolutions for mental health. Resolution number six is this. I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. So you may look at that and go, ah, wait, before you discount it, before you discount that, think about this. How would it change our day to slow down and observe the beauty of God's creation in anything? How would it affect our mindset? How would it adjust the way that you interact with people throughout the rest of the day? If you started it off by focusing on the beauty of what God's made, by not being so concerned about what something is, but being glad that it is. In light of Romans 1, I just want to ask that question of us this morning. How much would this practice benefit our state of mind? Slowing down and appreciating God. Allowing our gratitude, not only for our existence, but the existence of his creation and for those around us to swell every day. Let that grow. Let that fill us before we start. God has made his existence clear to see. How much more evident is the character and nature of God visible in Jesus? How much more evident is it to look at the life of Jesus Christ and to see God in human flesh and see all of the Godhead, as Scripture says, dwelling bodily in Jesus? How much more clearly when we look at Christ are we intended to see the beauty of the God that created us? And we read this in Colossians 1.15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, but if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus Christ. That's who he is. If you want to know what God would do if he was one of us, then just look at Jesus. Not a, no one connected with that? Okay. You guys, somehow this wasn't enough for the Pharisees. It wasn't enough for the Pharisees to look at Jesus and to understand who God was. Instead, 
They came with something to accuse. Instead, they were so preoccupied with things that were going on around them and with their own personal agendas that they discounted what Jesus had to say. And in fact, Jesus became a problem for them. And you're like, but we're the church. We would never do that. You sure? Are you sure that even right now you're not too preoccupied with something else that the Lord is knocking on the door and you're too busy to answer? Or maybe it's like Halloween. You're ducking under the couch because you don't have any candy. You've never done that, right? Never turned all the lights out and hid? You guys, the Pharisees weren't satisfied with the image of the invisible God standing before them in human flesh. They didn't slow down and observe him with open eyes and open hearts. And church, I know we love Jesus, but I'm concerned that often we're not recognizing what he's doing in our lives because we're looking for him to do something else. We're so focused on one thing that we want him to do one situation that we want him to fix, we're missing everything else that's happening in the world. We're missing all the other things that are going on around us. Maybe we're concerned about this person that's right here, and that's a rightful concern. But what about all the other people God has put in your life for you to minister to and to care for? Don't forsake them. Maybe we want him to perform some kind of a miracle or some earth-shattering sign, and we're just going to wait for him to do that before we move an inch. And we're missing the stars in the sky at night. We're missing the soft rustle of the trees. We're missing the quiet communication and prayer, the still small voice, the daily grace, the daily bread. And do you know what happens to us? And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute. We start to become people who are putting expectations and we're starting to put limitations on what God can do. If you don't do this, then I'm just going to sit here and wait for you to do that, and I'm not moving. That's not like Moses when he says, God, if you're not going with us, then we won't go. That's not the same attitude. This is the attitude of looking at God and saying, unless you do this, I won't do this. Oh, we're going to bargain with him now? We're going to tell him what the terms are of our obedience? As Jesus and the disciples cross the Sea of Galilee, the Pharisees are waiting for Jesus on the other side to test him. Let's take a look at the text. And we'll see that this is not so that they might believe, but they're seeking a chance to discredit Jesus. Let's look at what Jesus does carefully here. It's very important. Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bible, open it up. Let's get into the word together. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. I'm going to read down through verse 21. The gospel reads this way. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread, had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, it's comedic. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, 
How many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? This is the word of the Lord. And if we're reading this in context, looking at the, the disciples, just be like, man, they are so dumb. We talked about this last week. It's amazing how much like us they are. This demand of a sign by the Pharisees, let's deal with the beginning of the text here first, is not coming from hearts that are seeking to find Jesus. They're not seeking to see if he is actually the Messiah. This is not a group of religious leaders who are looking to understand. Their mind is made up. They're looking for a way to accuse him. They want to accuse him of something. No sign would have convinced them. They had already seen what Jesus could do. He's cast out demons, a whole legion of demons out of a man. He's cast out demons of other people in their presence in the synagogue. He's healed lame people. And I'm not talking about people who don't know how to dress right, people who couldn't walk. And he's healing people who are crippled. And he's doing all these things in the public eye. And he's seen them and heard tale of him feeding thousands and thousands of people. What more could they possibly want? And that's a very good question to ask. It's not that they want more from him. They want ammunition against him. No sign would have convinced them. They had remained willfully blind. They were seeking signs with closed eyes. That's why Jesus sighs. That's why when they come to him, he sighs deeply in his spirit, it says. And this is a sigh of frustration because as much as the Greek word is used here, if you look at the actual context of the Greek word, Anastanazo, it's simply a groan. It's implying a groan, but it's a deep spirit groan. It's like, oh, just burdened over this. Deep in the spirit of Jesus, this desire to discredit him grieves him. He's not angry at them. Jesus does get upset from time to time. You see that. But here, this is grief over the fact that they aren't even interested in who he is. They just want him quiet. So they're looking for a way to discredit him and silence him. Christian, notice this. When the hearts are closed, and the Spirit has to reveal this to us, this requires discernment, Jesus has no problem walking away. You could look at that and go, why didn't he argue with them? Wasn't interested. The hearts were closed. He moved on. There's a lot to that. Now, don't use this as a way to abandon people, but I think it's important to note that Jesus knew when to walk away. He knew when to say, there's nothing in this, I'm done. And he'd walk away. This is not an excuse to quit on people. Rather, we ought to seek the sensitivity of the Spirit to know when to end the discussion and say, what you're after from me right now is not going to bring any glory to God. I'm out. If there was no glory for God to be had, Jesus was not interested. He was all about glorifying the Father. Some are out to discredit, to tie us up in conversations with no desire for change. When the religious leaders came to Jesus with honest questions, he would give them honest answers. He's going to do that in a couple chapters. But when they came to discredit, Jesus doesn't play their games. He knew when to walk away from a conversation. We need the discernment to do the same. Not angry, but grieved at the hardness of heart. Notice his heart posture. He's grieved over this. He's not using it as an excuse to not deal with them. I think sometimes when we're struggling in relationships with people, we're like, I don't know what I need to do here. Be sure that there is grief in your heart over it and that it's not an angry response seeking for freedom from somebody. That's an important distinction to make. 
So Jesus and the disciples depart. He leaves. And he heads for Bethsaida on the north, northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the interaction that happens on the boat is hilarious to me. Because this is so how we would think if we were not spiritually sensitive to what Jesus was doing or what he was talking about. So the disciples, it says in verse 14, they forgot to take bread. Innocent mistake, right? Like we've never forgot something before. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus charges them. He gives them very strict orders. He says, watch out. Now, if Jesus was in the boat with you and you'd seen him do all the things that he did, and as Peter's about to confess in Caesarea Philippi that he is the Messiah, the Christ, when Jesus says, watch out, I would freeze up a little bit. For what? Right? And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And immediately the disciples are like, this is about the bread. Oh, I have the bread. Do you only have one loaf? You know, they start arguing. They're like freaking out because we don't have food. This is a food issue. Now, you have to understand something here. If you look at the culture, leaven was not like a secret code that only choice people understood. What does leaven represent? And as the church, we should get it. What does leaven represent? Sin. In the Jewish culture, that would have been a unanimous shout. It's sin. They would immediately call that out because so often in Scripture, when you're talking about leaven and referring to a group of people, you're not talking about their dinner choices. You're talking about a sin issue. And that's why when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and beware of the leaven of Herod, I don't think the disciples for a second processed this. I think they assumed what Jesus was implying. You know, these guys have some leaven that you shouldn't have. And they're like, oh, he's hitting at us for the bread. And Jesus is like, what? That's not what I'm getting. Ooh, I didn't know if I was capable of that. Sometimes, you guys... We use leaven in the same term. If I was to put it in terms for us, it's like what we would call original sin or sin nature. If I was talking about sin nature, which is the sin that we all understand, that we all have experienced, that we have all have failed in this way, that's what we're talking about when we talk about leaven. It's sin that we all understand, we've all experienced. No one in this room is going to be like, never sin, brother. Be like, liar, you just sin. But like, if you, if you look at your life, we understand that we're sinners. That's why we've come to Jesus, because we're in need of grace. Amen? So we understand that we're sinners. When he's talking about leaven in this situation, they should connect this. And as Jesus and the disciples are crossing the sea, he's thinking about this demand. The Lord is thinking about this demand by the Pharisees for this sign, and he connects it to Herod. And it's not hard to do this, but this is fascinating to me. As we study prior in Mark's gospel, we understand this. Remember when he had John the Baptist beheaded? That's already happened at this point. When he had John the Baptist beheaded, he had it done because he couldn't face the public shame of being wrong, and he also had been called on the carpet by John the Baptist for being, let's just call it incestuous and gross, and an adulterer to boot. Herod was all about Herod. Herod was all about getting what he wanted. All he cared about was having what he wanted. He was obsessed with himself. Both the Pharisees and Herod were about an earthly kingdom. They were about controlling and having an earthly kingdom, having power and authority over others. They wanted an earthly kingdom that they could rule and have importance in. Hence the reason they wanted to see signs. 
Why do people want to see signs? Why do they bring someone before them and have them perform a sign? Is it to show the authority of the person that's before them over them, or is it to show that they have authority over the person by commanding them to do a sign? Did you ever think about it that way? Is this more about a reversal of power structure? When you call someone forward and say, do a sign for me and then I'll believe. Who's taking charge there? The person who's giving the order. The person who's saying, do this sign and then I'll believe. Think about Herod. What did he want from Jesus? Well, we saw it in Luke chapter 23, verses 8 and 9. When Jesus was brought before Herod during his trial, do you remember what Herod wanted to see? It says this, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Why? Because he was convicted about his sin? No. Because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. What does Jesus do in that situation, just like with the Pharisees? Here in Mark chapter 8, he made him no answer. Jesus would not speak to Herod. What does Jesus do with these Pharisees when they demand a sign of him? He leaves. He's not going to play this game with them. He's not going to let them pretend like they have authority over him because they don't. You see, when people demand something of God, they're seeking to reverse the power structure. If God is on the hook for impressing us or proving his power to us, then that gives us power over him. That puts me in charge. The moment that we're giving God terms and ultimatums, we have misunderstood who he is. As C.S. Lewis would write in the Chronicles of Narnia, referring to Aslan, who represents Jesus, he says he's not a tame lion. You don't control God. He does as he wishes. Interesting, isn't it? Not only that, but Jesus cautions to beware of the sins of the Pharisees and Herod, and we would do well to listen intently to this because the disciples didn't get it. Are we aware of the sins that we're replicating of our age? Jesus says, watch out. Am I aware of the sins of my age that are replicating or seeking to replicate themselves in my life? While Jesus is addressing matters of the heart that come out of our lives, the disciples are fretting over what goes into the body. And Jesus is about to give them a case study. And we would probably want to give them a case study after studying through all of these chapters of Mark thus far and be like, uh, there's the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, are you guys really, there's feeding of the 4,000. It just happened. Are we really worried about bread here? And we're like, really, guys? But this is for us. This is for us. Because we look at the situation, and it's so easy to armchair quarterback it. And if you don't, you're like football reference. In other words, you're saying that the quarterback could do it better, but you're not on the field. You're eating Doritos. Okay? And we all do this, right? Oh, I would teach that passage differently. Well, then do it. You're like, I will. No, 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 I'm just kidding. Stay in your seats. You guys, think about this. <laughs> Thank you, Christian. You guys, he cautions the disciples to be aware, and he tells them to watch out. This isn't about the lack of bread. They're thinking physically. Jesus is teaching them something spiritual here. And that's why I had BJ read from John chapter 6. Because Jesus taught the people right after the feeding of the 5,000, and the disciples were there, that he is the bread of life. Let's take a look at this last section a little bit more closely. I'm going to tie in another teaching of Christ that's already happened that we need to remember 
and that they are going to be reminded to think of as well. It's great, isn't it? As they're whispering, whispering to themselves, you forgot the bread. It's Peter's fault. He eats two loaves on his own. You know, they're over there arguing about all these things. Jesus becomes aware. He says, aware of this. He said to them, why are you discussing, verse 17, the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. He says, do you not understand yet? There's some hope there. Don't you understand yet? What's interesting, if you read Matthew's account of this, it says, then they remembered. Then they got it. Aha, Eureka. So this is a firm rebuke, but we cannot forget that Jesus lovingly rebukes. He's rebuking in love. And so we're like, boy, that's firm. You know, I just, I'm a person when I rebuke somebody, I just bring it hard. It's like, you have to be loving because if it's just rebuke and it's like angry and smacking people, that's not Christ. That's not Jesus. He rebukes all the same, but he doesn't love. Have you ever had a friend who's so consumed with one situation that no matter what you're conversing about, they bring that conversation back to their situation? Ever had somebody do that? Where you're talking to them and they're like, I'm really upset about my macaroni salad. I'm just using something. And you're like, you know, I stubbed my toe on the way over here to the diner. I'm pretty sure I broke it. And they're like, yeah, I remember this one time I had macaroni salad that felt like I was dying inside. I thought I might have broke something too. And they just keep bringing it back to that same situation. Like, how did you get broken toe back to macaroni salad? Right? And you're like, this is a ridiculous illustration. No, it's not, because we know people who do this. We are the people who do this. We get so stuck on our things that we're concerned about. Maybe they're legitimate, but we have no control over it. It's in the Lord's hands, and yet we obsess over it. You guys, are we those people? We can all be this person. When we're so focused on one thing, we can let it bleed into all the other things. And the disciples are like, the bread, bro, the bread. And Jesus is like, stop. What Do you really think this is a bread issue? Jesus couldn't even say the word leaven, and the disciples were lighting into this whole thing about not having bread. They should have known. They were good Jewish boys. They should be like, oh, yes, sin. We've read the Torah. Right? But no, they're like, oh, it's the bread. We talked about this, you guys. I knew it. I knew he was going to blame us. And they bring it right back to something that obviously Jesus not, is not talking about. Jesus does what I would expect in this situation, considering that we've read Mark 6. And last week, we again saw him feed the 4,000. He did that from next to nothing. Yes? When you're talking about many thousands of people and a few loaves of bread, you know that Jesus did something clearly miraculous and overwhelmingly amazing. Why in the world would they be so concerned about having enough food when Jesus is in the boat? You don't think he can make enough from that one loaf to feed them? Even if Peter's feeling like a hungry, hungry hippo, it's still going to work. You guys, Jesus is the only bread they need. He is the only bread that they need. He is their provider. 
Think about this. They were there when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. They were there. In the Sermon on the Mount, that's already happened at this point. Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read this section from it. And they were there when this was taught. I just cannot emphasize this enough. This is so important. Verses 25 through 34 says this. Now, this is also in conjunction with the feeding of the five and the 4,000. But this teaching is important because it gets to the concept beneath that provision. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Notice that Jesus is drawing their attention to nature, to God's creation around them. Verse 29, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry. Be happy. Just kidding. He doesn't do that. Saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, food, clothing, water, the necessaries will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. That is so comforting if we would just receive it. Because how many times, you guys, are we stressing the things that God has said? Not only will he handle but things that we have no power to control, that I have no power to change. I can't tell you how many times what I'm about to show you on the screen has been my wife and I. Go ahead and put it up, Trevor. Now, if you can't read it, I understand. He says you look tired. She's like, thanks, I stayed up all night obsessing about things I have no control over. Now, there's soft chuckling going around, but I imagine there's some mm -mm between couples because they're like, yeah, remember that thing that you stayed up all night worrying about? You woke up in the morning, the bags under your eyes were like hefty bags, and you're like, I need six cups of coffee because I just didn't sleep all night. Why? Because the situation is just mm. not constipation, but like it's really stressing me out. You guys, how many times is that us? Now, this is interchangeable between my wife and I because I freak out about certain things. She freaks about other things. God put us together. We're just a big happy mess. Between the two of us, there is nothing left unfreaked out about. Now, what's amazing is we're teaching each other how to freak out about the other things. But here's the thing that Jesus does. He reminds us, why are you fretting over things, A, that... I will take care of and be over things you have no control over. Is there a situation that is wrecking you right now that you have no control over? Now, maybe you have some say in it. Maybe you can represent Christ in it, but you can't change the human heart. That's God's job. 
It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring conviction. When people come to us, we speak his truth to them. But I can't change their hearts. I don't have that kind of power. Why are we freaking out about things we have no control over? Grieve, pray, seek the Lord, yes. But are you letting it take your attention and focus it on something that you can't change? And you're completely ineffective for the rest of the people in your life, for the rest of the situations in your life. Because we're so focused on the fact that we don't have enough bread we're missing that Jesus is teaching us something foundational about the rest of our lives. Things that we must get right. In this situation, on the boat, what's more important, the fact that they don't have enough loaves or that the disciples understand to not let the sin of the Pharisees and Herod permeate their life? Which is more destructive? What's the greater problem? And we're like, oh, for sure, we can't let sin permeate. So what are you more focused on right now? What's drawing your attention right now in your life? Is it the deep things of spiritual teaching that God is seeking to get into your heart? Or are you concerned about where your job's going? If the car's going to run. Why your car's not running? I'll just speak from experience. All the little things. Now, the Lord cares about these things. But are we obsessing over that stuff when the Lord's like, I want to teach you something different? Stop staring at the loaves. Start looking at the Savior who's in the boat with you. You have the bread of life with you. The disciples were there as the crowds of 5,000 and 4,000 were fed with the abundance left over. And it says if Jesus looks at them and says, why are you worrying? Don't you remember what happened before? Has an experience taught you that you don't need to worry about things like that if you're with me? Do we need to be worrying about the things we're worrying about when we're with Jesus? Do we get this yet? Barclay said this, I loved it. He said, if we would only read the lessons of experience aright, it would teach us not the pessimism of the things that cannot be, but the hope which stands amazed that God has brought us thus far in safety and in certainty and the confidence that God will bring us through anything that may happen. I'm going to read it again. Can I read that again? If we would only read the lessons of experience aright, it would teach us not the pessimism of the things that cannot be, but the hope which stands amazed that God has brought us thus far in safety and in certainty and the confidence that God can bring us through anything that may happen. Is our confidence in Christ? Then we shall not be moved. Because he's going to provide the bread. He's going to provide the water. He is that living water. He's paid attention to the needs that we have that are very practical and very real. But we must into what he has called us to in this walk and in this life. And so many of us are obsessing over a situation. We're not receiving from him. We're not letting him change us. We're not letting him give us new hearts. Church, let us listen to the Holy Spirit. And find our satisfaction in all that God has done and is doing and that he will do. Don't get caught wishing for him to do something else when he's present in the moment. The sign of truly religious people is not that they come to church to find God, but that they find God everywhere. 
Not that they make a great deal of sacred places, but that they sanctify common places. You see, church, we don't cease to be the church when we leave this building. I don't want to, like, wreck your vision of what this building is, but this is just a building. The church is a people. And when God's church goes forth into this world, he goes with us. And we go to sanctify common places, to remind people of who the Savior is. The gathering matters. But if this is all we do, we're wasting our faith. It's to be demonstrated outside these walls. It's to be lived outside of these walls. The Pharisees, they missed the point. They wanted what they wanted. They wanted their own power, their own control. Their eyes were on the wrong thing. The disciples, they had too many worries, too many cares, too many concerns. They were with Jesus. They belonged to him. The Pharisees represent the unbelieving world. The disciples represent us. Often misguided, often consumed with our cares and not with what the Lord is actually doing. I'm speaking from personal experience, you guys. This is something that I wrestle with regularly. Am I actually focused on what the Lord is doing or am I just trying to get my checklist done? Am I so focused on having an organized system or a really well-run program that I'm not actually willing to do what the Lord is leading me to do in this moment? That he actually wants to throw a wrench into my plan for the day. How dare he? Right? How many times have we looked at, do you have any idea how many things I have to do today? I don't have the time to talk to this person who's in need. You guys, the Lord's calling us to focus on the things that matter most. There's no condemnation here. He loves us. In the same way that he rebukes his disciples, he rebukes us and says, walk with me. Do you understand yet? It's not about the loaves. It's about the bread of life. As we transition this morning, it's the perfect opportunity for us to share communion together. And as the team comes forward, they're going to distribute uh, the elements for you guys. I want to encourage you that as we think about the bread of life, as we think about Jesus, this is an opportunity to remember him. And I want to remind you guys of this as well. For the church, when we come to this remembrance of the cross, I love what Bonhoeffer said about it. He said, the Lord's Supper is an occasion of joy for the Christian community. Reconciled in our hearts with God and the body, we are receiving the gift of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And receiving that, we receive forgiveness, new life, and restoration. This is an opportunity for us to remember as we take this bread, that he is the bread of life, and ask him for renewal. Ask him to renew you. If your mind has been consumed with something, ask him to set your sights back on him. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as the writer of Hebrews would say. So you guys, as we come to the table for communion, I want us to recognize that this is a joyful thing we get to do. And that it binds us together. And if you are a believer, this is for you. And if you're not, I'm going to ask for you to let it pass. If you have not accepted Christ as your personal Savior, this is not for you. We can talk about that if you're like, but I want to take communion. Get saved. Receive Jesus right now. But you guys, I have to, I have to make a very important distinction here. 
it is for believers, and Paul even goes to the extent in 1 Corinthians 11 to say that some people had gotten sick and even died because they took communion in an unworthy manner. So let us take this seriously. As we take communion, recognize this is our Savior. Broken and bleeding for us. Binds us together as we receive this, recognizing that He has saved us from our sin. It's by grace through faith that we've been saved. And we're going to remember that through communion this morning. So as we sing a song, they're going to distribute the elements, and then we'll take it together. Hold on to them, and I'll walk us through communion together.